You are holding women's hands to hell, snapped Sylvia, glaring at Sue over the conference table. Both women were respected, experienced Bible teachers in the same church. Every week, hundreds of women sat at their feet to learn about the joy, peace, and love of Jesus. But today, these two leaders were embroiled in a conflict that threatened to destroy their reputation and ministries. The executive pastor sat between them, attempting to negotiate. And so begins a recent book that was put in my hands called Leading Women Who Wound by Sue Edwards and Kelly Matthews. The accusation in this case was false teaching, and it got ugly. It got real ugly, as you can tell from the way the book begins. As I scanned through this book and looked at the bibliography in the back at some of the works that these two women used in writing this book, it dawned on me that there is a whole world of conflicting women out there that I was really unaware of. (laughs) I I really need to get out more. (laughs) Here are some of the titles that they consulted, all written in the last 10 to 15 years as they put this book together for Christian women. Tripping the Prom Queen. Here's another, Women to Women 2000, Becoming Sabotage Savvy in the New Millennium. Here's another, Girl Fighting. Or Woman's Inhumanity to Woman. I think this was my favorite, C. Jane Hit. (laughs) Why girls are growing more violent and what we can do about it. And the last that caught my eye was Well-Intentioned Dragons. Ministering to problem people in the church. Now, we know that men tend to be, there are exceptions to every generalization, but men tend to be task-oriented and not as relational as women. Men tend to be able to compartmentalize their life. You know, it's kind of a joke. Guys can get in a fist fight in the morning and have lunch together, you know. Men are able to do this. Just put things in compartments and and kind of move on easier in general. Women, to their credit, tend to be more relational. Women tend to be more integrated with their life. They don't compartmentalize as much. And it's really a strength. And in fact, this strength that women have can contribute to conflict happening and conflict festering. It's one of those classic cases where strengths can actually work against us. So let me ask you women a question as we begin. Are you a woman here this morning in conflict with another woman? Or are you a man here this morning who knows a woman in conflict with another woman? (laughs) Then listen up. Listen up to God's Word today as we do our sequential exposition through the book of Philippians. For you new folks who are with us, that's what we're doing. We're going through this wonderful letter of Paul whose theme is joy in the progress of the gospel. As we do this, we come to a very unique slice this morning, a very fascinating piece of Scripture that if we weren't doing expository preaching verse by verse, we would never land here and preach this passage. On on first glance, it doesn't seem like there's that much there. But we have a word from God here, and it deals with conflict in the church. It deals with those things that might work against our unity as believers in Christ. 
So we all need to listen up and be equipped this morning and be taught. There's something here for all of us because I believe that conflicts are like trials. You're either coming out of one, you're in one, or you're headed to one. <laughs> That's just the way it is in this, in this life. So we all need to be listening. So let's look at the passage. Let me read it for you again in that light. Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. To live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now it's getting real. It's getting real. Now, to be sure, woman-to-woman conflict is not the only time that unity is threatened in churches. And to be sure, this is not the first time Paul has actually addressed a threat to disunity in the church at Philippi and even in this letter. So let's rehearse those times that he's already covered. In fact, he may have had this situation in mind when he said these things earlier. He knew where he was headed. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says that we need to be standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That was the first mention of this plea to unity in the church at Philippi. He goes on in chapter 2 and verse 2, and he urges them all there, men and women, to be, quote, of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then in verse 3 of chapter 2, he adds that we were to do nothing from selfish motives. And we're to do nothing from vain glory or vain pride. But each one of us with a lowliness of mind were to think of the other person as more important than us, than ourselves. That's chapter 2 and verse 3. And so Paul has been dealing with what appears to be this, we, we might say, a mild to moderate threat to the unity of the church in Philippi. I don't think we need to overblow this, that things are uh, falling apart and everybody's at each other's throats. But there is something going on here in this church that is an issue. But now when we come to chapter 4, as he's beginning to turn the corner and come to the end of this book, now we see that the stakes are raised. Something is different here in our verses. The tone has changed a bit. He's naming names. He is calling out two warring women in this passage. And that's what makes it rather unique and rather fascinating. I think what is underneath all of this and really is explicitly stated even in our past passage, that when it comes to unity among believers, there is something great and glorious at stake. Greater and more glorious than just us getting along with each other. There is a world of lost people that need us to be able to get along so that we can get them the gospel. And so there is a, a great urgency here in Paul's words as he writes these letters. The tone of it is urgent and crystal clear and pointed and yet not a harsh rebuke. So he's walking a very delicate and fine line as he urges these sisters in Christ. Now, as you read the passage, as you've heard it read this morning, the first uh, thing that comes to mind, there are about 
three questions that just leap off the page that we would love to have the answers to conclusively, but we actually, we don't. Uh, we can speculate to some degree, but we don't have answers on the things we would really like to know about this pas- passage. And let me just kind of walk through these three questions by way of introduction before we get into uh, the, the message itself, really. The first question that comes to mind is, who is the true companion of verse 3? Paul says, indeed, true companion, a single person. We know from the Greek that it is a male person, but he doesn't name him, or does he? There are two major views as to who Paul is talking about. By true companion, or genuine, or legitimate companion. The first view is this, that Paul actually does give his personal name. The name in Greek is Syzygus. Syzygus, S-Y-Z-Y-G-U-S. This is the word that means companion. And in lots of cases in ancient times, your name meant something. It wasn't just Bill or George or Tom. It actually had a meaning behind it. Paul, the name Paul means little one. And so the name Syzygus actually means yoke fellow, comrade, companion, yoke fellow. And so Paul then, what he is doing in verse 3 is he's calling on this individual in the church at Philippi to live up to his name. Be true companion. Be genuine yoke fellow. In favor of this view is that Paul does something similar to this in the book of Philemon with the name Onesimus. He uses the name as a wordplay. So Paul does this in other places. Also in favor of this is he uses personal names before. You see it in verse 2. He names two people by name. And then he does it again in verse 3 with Clement. And so this name is surrounded by personal names. And he even brings up the word name at the end of this passage. Also in favor of this view is Paul never uses this word yoke fellow to describe a fellow worker anywhere else in the Bible. Though he does often talk about fellow workers even in our passage. But never this word. So I tend to accept this view. I think we have a personal name here whose name means companion. And I have never seen a translation that translates it this way. But it it could, in fact, be what Paul is doing. Against this view, there's only one against. There's no evidence outside of this verse or anywhere in extra-biblical writings. There's no evidence in archaeology. There's no evidence in any kind of tablets or tombstones or anything that they found that this was a proper name in the first century. So you weigh that out. I mean, to me, that's not that big a deal. But some it is. So I think Paul is actually naming the person here, and his name is Syzygus. And his name means yoke fellow. The second major view is that whoever true companion is, everyone in the church would know who he's talking about. And that's when the suggestions start to come in. Some suggest that this was Timothy. Some suggest that it was Luke, who may still be hanging around the church at Philippi. He was part of their church plant. The best suggestion, I think, of that view is this is Epaphroditus who is going to take this letter and go back to this church where he is kind of recognized as the leader or the pastor. And so it's very possible Paul's naming him here and calling him true yoke fellow. My comeback to that is, then why not just give his name? Why not just say, indeed, Epaphroditus, I ask you and name him. Paul doesn't. So those are the two major views. At a minimum, here's what everyone can agree on, that whoever this is, it's a prominent and tactful male person in the church at Philippi. 
that Paul is requesting help from. Second question, who were these women and what was their role? Again, we just don't know much. This is the only time they're named in the book, in the, in the book of Philip, Philippians or in the Bible. I think what we can deduce is that they were prominent women in the church who were probably leaders. They probably led other women or they had significant ministries. They had a significant role. Perhaps they were some of the first converts along with Lydia. Lydia, the seller of purple, Acts 16, was one of the first converts in this church. And so there may have been many women who made up the, this body of believers. What we do know for certain from the verse is that they had a past history of working side by side. Women, can you imagine? Side by side with the Apostle Paul in sharing the gospel with their community. They were zealous evangelists for the cause. They worked in the cause of Christ. So what we can know about these two women, I think it's very important to the message this morning, is that they were saved, they were proven, they were mature women who were heavily involved in the cause of the gospel and in the ministries of this church. These weren't just people on the fringe, these weren't just people that are warming pews, these aren't just uh, people who are just checking out Christianity. These are valued, highly valued co-workers in the gospel. In fact, if you look at this, and you look at how Paul is speaking to them, he indicates something of their spiritual maturity by how he addresses them. I mean, seriously, he's calling them out by name in an inspired writing of Scripture that's going to be read to the whole church. Okay? He knows they can handle it. They want, they will not freak out and go crazy about being named. I mean, they're mature enough to deal with this. So actually by Paul naming them is a serious vote of confidence in them that they will do the right thing. Now, we need to bring this to the 21st century because I have never met anybody named Yodia and Syntyche. So I want to bring this into our church to help you appreciate what was going on in that church. And I'm going to name two women this morning who are not in conflict, okay? We're going to just pretend. <laughs> We're going to pretend. It would be like Paul saying, I urge Kathy Kerr and I urge Mary Dale Craig. <laughs> All right? Most of you know who these women are. And they're not in conflict. That's why I'm safe saying that th this morning, okay? These are sisters who, who love each other. But I think that's the kind of people Paul is talking about here that helps us appreciate What's at stake? What if those two women were in a major conflict and the whole church knew about it? What would that do to our unity and our peace and our, and our joy? And what would that do to our witness and so forth? And so we, we make it personal that way. Third question that I want us to answer or at least consider is what was the nature of their dispute? And in God's wisdom, we do not know by design. We do know, though, that it threatened the unity of that church and that it was serious enough for Paul to address it firmly and urgently and publicly. But I want you to notice that Paul does not place blame, does he? He does not blame either one of them. They get the exact same language, equally stated. In fact, he mentions their names in alphabetical order. This is a wise man. Why did he name me first? <laughs> no, Yodia, Syntyche, alphabetical order. He doesn't rebuke them. He's not harsh. He doesn't take sides. 
Did you notice that? He's not taking sides in this conflict. Each sister in Christ gets a separate personal admonishment. Because he does not take sides, this tells us then that the conflict is something other than doctrine. Because I guarantee you Paul takes sides when it comes to doctrine. He will not hesitate to call a false teacher out and to express the truth. Read Galatians. Read Corinthians. Read nearly all of his writings. So I think that tells us then that the conflict is unnamed, but it's something other than doctrinal, which tells us, right, it could have been anything. Conflict in the church is like rain in the rainforest. It happens. It happens. There was one book that was mentioned in the book I started with. Here was the title, Congregation, Synonym for Conflict. All right, our unique text this morning gives us two commands for the whole church. There are two commands here. Command number one, well, let me say it first this this way. The two commands are here so that we will help promote a harmonious, unified church. That's the aim here in Paul writing this. It's not just to resolve their personal conflict, but it's much uh, deeper and wider than that. So here's the first command. Right out of verse 2. If you are in conflict, try to be agreeable. That's it. Try to be agreeable with the person you're in conflict with. Paul gives a double dose of emphatic exhortation. He literally says, I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to agree. To be of the same mind. It's the same word he used back in chapter 2 that we've already read from. Ladies, ladies, embrace the same thoughts. That's what he's saying. Be in agreement. Stop arguing. Get along. Work it out. Be harmonious. Retract the clause. (laughs) Now again, it could have been anything. Maybe flower arrangements. Or the color of carpet. It's happened. It's happened. I mean, here we get bickering with each other over the trivial and the mundane. And the color of the carpet matters. It it matters. But we can get bickering over each other over these things and forget that there are people out there who need to hear the gospel who are dying and going to hell because we're in here arguing about flower arrangements. Maybe it was who would watch the kids during church and what snacks they would be fed. Maybe it's how to raise kids. Maybe it's how to educate kids. Maybe it's who has the best strategy for evangelism. Maybe there's a case that they're discussing about how to reach a certain person or family and they're in disagreement about how to go about that. It could be anything. Paul is saying, bury the hatchet, have a Christ-like attitude toward each other, and move on. Now, we've got to look closer at the text because this is what takes us to Christ, takes us to the, our, our how-to, takes us to our help. Look at every word. He says to live in harmony. Where? In the Lord. That's the answer to how. How does this happen? How do warring people come to have peace with, with each other? Well, it's in the Lord. 
Our basis of unity is Jesus. Our basis of unity is Jesus and His Word. Not our opinions and our preferences. Not our personal convictions that we may differ on. But we are to be of the same mind about the cause, about the purpose, about the the things of Christ and the Word. And let all these other things be secondary things. That's the issue here. Paul says, where can a warring Christian find this agreeable spirit? It is in the Lord. It's in his room. It's, it's in the area of the Lord. It's in the sphere where an agreeable unity and God-honoring harmony is found. It's found in the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus who prayed for our unity before he went to the cross. The Lord Jesus who died on a cross that we might be unified and be one, even as he and the Father are one. The same Lord Jesus that sent his Holy Spirit so that the Spirit would make us one. We'd be baptized into the same body of Christ, individual members, but one body to get along and to exude Christ's likeness together. The same Jesus who intercedes right now, even as we speak, that we might be one body of Christ. Unity is very important to God. Unity is very important to the Son. Unity is very important to the Spirit. We are to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, harmony, getting along, retracting the clause, stop looking to pounce on every little thing and agree in the Lord. This is where we find our unity in the Word of God and in the Son of God. This is the first command here then. It's very simple. If you are in conflict, try to be agreeable. Try to be reconciled. Allow yourself to be in harmony. Don't demand your rights. Put the other person as more important than yourself. Consider the great cause of striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so forth. Command number two. This is where the rest of us come in, male or female, but in the passage directed especially toward the men. Command number two. If you know of conflict then we are to be an aggressive peacemaker. Be an aggressive peacemaker. This is verse 3. Paul begins verse 3 with, Yes, or even, or indeed, true companion, I beseech you. He's pleading with this man now. He's, he's not just casually asking him. He's pleading with him and beseeching him also to help these women. This reminds us, and Curtis shared it this morning as we began, this reminds us of the words of Christ, doesn't it? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying that when you try to bring two warring people together, you are acting like God. You are like a chip off the old block. You are resembling your father. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is so critical to the Christian church and the Christian life and our witness at large. Paul says it this way, I entreat you, yoke fellow, to literally, the translation's a little soft here, it just says help. The word is actually seize, catch, arrest. Sizagus, seize these women. Arrest them, he's saying. It also means to bring together. 
It means to collect. This is the word used to describe a criminal being arrested and being collected and being gathered. And why does this matter so much? Why, why, why does Paul bring this out? Why are they named? Why such urgency? Because of who they are and what they've done. Look at it. They have shared my struggle. That's a word in athletic contest. My battle. My competition, if you will. They have shared my wrestling match. They have struggled with me in the cause of the good news of taking the gospel to the lost. They had a lot of influence in this church. And so their spat is a big deal. And therefore calls for this urgency. Because, here's the greater cause. The cause of the gospel is at stake. Men, (laughs) men, this is addressed to us. You know why? Because we tend to be passive, don't we? Men tend to be passive in the face of problems and threats. The typical male M.O. is ignore it and maybe it will go away. (laughs) Right? That's, that's just kind of how we roll. Just, you, you see a mess, or you see a mess coming up, ignore it long enough, and somebody else will deal with it, right? The more refined among us might say, well, they're mature women. These are godly women who love the Lord. They understand each other. W- what can a man add to this? You know, I'm just going to stay out of the way because... They can work it out. Paul urges on us with very strong words to the men in the church to get off of our rear and to get involved. That's what this is saying in verse 3. Get involved. Intervene. Do something. Go to these sisters and have the meeting. That's what Paul's saying. Now, he addresses one individual in verse 3. If this one individual figuratively speaking, seizes two women, then what just happened with those two women? They're face to face, aren't they? If they're both together with the true companion and he's collected them, then we're all in the room together. We're all at the same table. We're all face to face. Good time for some practical advice in resolving conflict. Do not try to resolve conflict over the phone. God forbid that you would try to do this through email. Disaster in the making. Facebook is a horrible forum for working out conflict. You don't resolve conflict over Facebook. People have to be together to resolve conflict. You have to see each other, hear each other, be in the same room looking at each other. If at all possible. At its core, this passage is a call to the men of the church to get involved in settling disputes among the women by bringing them together. If we miss that, we've missed the whole point of this passage. And that brings us to another name, Clement. A male name. Another brother in this church. Who is he? I don't know. This is all we know about him. He was a fellow worker of the gospel as well. Why is he mentioned? Speculation. Okay? Perhaps this problem was so difficult that Yokefellow couldn't handle it alone. Perhaps Paul is mentioning Clement 
who is another prominent person in this church, perhaps another male, a male leader, perhaps even an elder, perhaps Paul is mentioning him to give him credibility to get involved in this situation and help it. Because sometimes even the helper needs help. Because we all need help. The women need help and, and true companion needs help and we're all needing help. The mention of Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, do you see that? Together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, this raises a very important issue when it comes to resolving conflict and interpersonal battles in the church. The point that that makes to us is that these two women are not in isolation from everyone else. This is critical that we understand this. These are not two women sitting together, stranded on a desert island, not talking to each other with their arms folded, facing opposite directions. These are people who are connected with a larger group, a larger community, a larger family. It's not just about them. They are part of a body. They share a same struggle in a hostile world. And their conflict hurts that struggle and it hurts the whole body. See, that's the principle here that Paul is bringing to our attention. When we are embroiled in conflict, other people are affected. Our attitudes, our words, our body language, our facial expressions, our mumbling under our breath, our rolling of our eyes, our avoiding that other person, all of that impacts the whole group. In sports, they call this team chemistry. They talk about the chemistry in the locker room. Do these people actually like each other? It goes a long way toward winning. It goes a long way toward accomplishing the goal of the group. Now, as we try to be agreeable, if we're in conflict, and as we try to help others make peace, we need to see the big picture. Again, it's the gospel causes the big picture. We cannot let petty differences and trivial matters divert us from the mission. And this happens time and again in churches, right? We just get so small-minded and narrow-minded and small-hearted and we just get bent out of shape over the smallest of things. And we miss the cause. Paul is basically saying, chill, ladies, we're on the same team. We can't be fighting each other. We've got a war to fight against spiritual enemies and the cause of Christ. We've got to keep focused on the main thing, Jesus, the gospel, the word of God. Did you hear what happened among the players of the Indiana Pacers before the playoffs started? They're kind of falling apart. They're a number one seed. They're playing an eight seed. The team they're playing doesn't even have a 500 record. And, and the Pacers are on the ropes. Did you hear what happened before they ever played the first playoff game? They had a fist fight among two players in the locker room. And the article I read said, truth be known, most of the other players were probably just fine to let them beat the dribble out of each other. And after a while, somebody finally stepped in and pulled these two guys apart. And you watch them play, and it shows. It shows. There's something else, though, 
at stake. There's something else going on here. There's yet another principle Paul would want to give us out of this passage. Not only must we stay focused on the main thing, not only are we connected to each other so our personal conflicts actually bleed out and get onto other people and have an effect, whether it's in the family or in the church family, but there's even a third thing here that Paul wants us to see that comes to bear on our conflict. Did you see it? Do you see it? Look at the passage. Look at verse 3. How does he end it? He says, this is no throwaway phrase. This is no, oh, this might be a nice place to say something about the book of life. No, Clement and Yodia and Syntyche and True Companion, all of them and all of the fellow workers and all of the true Christians, all of them's names are in the book of life. Paul is saying that when the contest and the conflict is over, you're going to spend eternity with this person. The book of life is the register of heaven of all of the elect, of all of the saved, of all time. Paul's implication there is he wants Euodia to hear that and he wants her to stop and go, hey, there's my name in the book of life and look, there's Syntyche's name right beside of mine. I'm going to spend eternity with this sister in Christ or this brother in Christ. Surely we can agree to disagree or become agreeable or work out this situation here and now. All of our names then in the church, the the true body of Christ, all of them are in this registry of heaven. And this is very important for us to keep in mind. Very important. Maybe we could say it this way. Well, I'll get to it in a minute because it's one of my take-home points here. Just realize that you belong to each other forever. This is not just biological family. This is not just neighbors going to come and go. Right? And so we want to get working on those things even now. So if you're in a conflict, try to be agreeable. Try to be agreeable. Try to maintain unity. If you know of a conflict, be an aggressive an aggressive peacemaker. Don't ignore it and hope it goes away. Jump in. Intervene. Now, I want to give you three concluding takeaways, three take-home points that I think are important for us to understand, to remember. Number one, conflict happens. Conflict happens. Conflict happens among strong Christians, mature Christians, godly people. The disciples had conflict among themselves. Paul and Barnabas had such a conflict that they had to part ways and go their separate ways in their missionary endeavors. It's going to happen. Just because your name is recorded in the book of life, in the registry of heaven, doesn't mean you're not going to have some conflict on your way there with other people whose names are recorded in the book of life. We need, to, we need to just own that. Now, this doesn't mean we're just going to accept it, not do anything about it. But there is a, a, a place of maturity here that realizes that in the family and in the church, there's going to be conflict, and I'm not going to fall apart over it. I'm not going to act like, oh, how could Christians ever say such a thing or do such a thing? I'm not going to become rattled and my faith shaken because brothers and sisters in Christ can't get along. This is reality, folks. 
We're in a fallen world and fallen bodies. We are still in our process of sanctification. None of us have arrived. Not that I've already attained it or have become perfect, right? There's going to be conflict. So don't be surprised. Don't fall apart. Just be real and deal with it. Just deal with it. Not something to shock us and take away our faith and all of those things that can happen. Second thing is this. Conflicted people need help. Emotions get involved. Feelings get hurt. Distance. Separation. I mean, this is just, again, reality. In our less than perfect state, if we're in conflict with someone, we're going to need help to get this resolved. Let me tell you, this is what it means to be part of a church family and a church body. This is what membership really is all about. When you join a church, you are committing to build relationships with the people in that church and be willing to do the messy work of reconciliation. That's, that's what church membership means. That's what it means to be in a family. That's what it means to be on a team and care, right? Care about the outcome. Care about the progress. Care about winning. So we've got to just own this as well. People in conflict need help, and it's my job to help them. If I know about it, and if I'm able to help, I have a relationship there, then I need to jump in and do something. And, and even underneath all of that is the urge to have relationships, right? To not be an island unto yourself, to not be removed from the church body, to not know people, or to only know certain circles of people, or to be content with just the crowd that you know because you've always known them. And all of these new people are coming, and who's getting to know them? Who's going to help them when they have a conflict? And so the whole thing about this passage is saying, be an active, involved member of the body of Christ so that you then have the wherewithal and the trust and the love to help. One commentator said, you mean Paul's words are so strong here, he couldn't have said this if there wasn't trust between him and these women and if there wasn't love to soften the blow. He can use such language because he knows that they know he loves them. And he knows them, and he's worked with them. So conflicted people need help. Don't just think it's going to fix itself. Don't just think you can pray it away. Yes, prayer is important, but Paul does not call on the true companion to pray about it, does he? He calls on him to do something about it, to intervene, to take a risk, to get involved. Okay, that's point number three, get involved. Ask yourself this morning, do I know anyone in our body who is embroiled in conflict? Now, if you are a man, ask yourself twice. If you are a man in leadership, ask yourself three times. Because the responsibility certainly falls on those men who are in leadership. If the answer is yes... If you do know of such a conflict in this body, I want to ask you, what will you do about it today? What will you do about it this week to help a family member live in harmony with one another? This is a big deal to God. His son prayed for it, in part died for it, sent his spirit for it. It really matters to God that we love each other and are in unity with each other. Next Sunday is the Lord's table. There is no higher motivation for resolving interpersonal conflicts in the body of Christ than the Lord's table. 
And so let's take the message today in this passage, and let's take the Lord's table coming next Sunday, and let's use this week to do everything in our power to be at peace with one another and to resolve any conflict or to help resolve any warring conflict that we know of. Amen? Amen.